It's a chilly December in New York City, just before Christmas. A light snowfall dusts the city streets, and the year is 1911. We've got Model Ts and horse-drawn carriages leaving tracks in the snow as they drive past newly built skyscrapers. Men in suits are hustling to work, and women in long skirts and giant hats are pushing strollers. You also got the young boys in pageboy hats who are passing out newspapers. Inside apartments, children are writing letters to Santa. Here's a letter from little Albert. Dear Santa Claus, won't you please bring my brother Jack, Georgie, and Archie something for Christmas? As Mama says, she's afraid Santa Claus won't be here this Christmas, as my Papa has been out of work for a long time and just got a job on the new subway in Brooklyn. Christmas is a tough time for a lot of families. Kids, hopeful that Santa might stop by their homes, started writing letters to him in the North Pole and putting them in the mail. But at the time, the post office wasn't able to deliver letters all the way to the North Pole. So the letters started to pile up every year around the holidays. And the post office had a rule about letters that they couldn't send. They would be sent to the dead letter office and destroyed. This is Alex Palmer, the author of The Santa Claus Man. News got out of what was actually happening to these letters, and as you can imagine, people weren't happy about it. The post office got a lot of bad press. The New York Times had a a long editorial criticizing the fact that the post office was destroying these children's wishes. It was just such a, like, heartbreaking idea. Whoa, 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 whoa. Destroying the wishes and dreams of little kids? Oh, no. The public demanded that the post office release the Santa Claus letters to newspapers so that they could be published. Then, maybe a kind person will respond to the letters and help Santa out. In 1912, the post office gave in. They changed their policy so that these letters could be released to a local do-gooder or charity with permission from the postmaster. The first year that this law changed in New York, nobody took it over. Nobody volunteered. So not a single person came forward in the biggest city in the country. So did they just have a bunch of Grinches and Scrooges back then? And another year goes by, and all those letters to Santa end up in the trash again. But there was hope. The following Christmas, in 1913, a publicist by the name of John Duval Gluck Jr. stepped forward and agreed to answer Santa's mail. Gluck, a savvy businessman with a fundraising background, believed he could make an efficient letter-answering system and convince people to help Santa out by buying kids' presents. He volunteered to take this over, came up with this idea of basically serving as the kind of air traffic controller of Santa letters. Gluck quickly formed the Santa Claus Association, a charity that would make sure every child who wrote would get a response from Santa. Well, isn't that nice? The letters would be sorted, and then the most needy children's letters would be given to a generous New Yorker who may buy the child a gift. He pitched it as a volunteer-driven charity. And Gluck was ready to do it all on a shoestring budget. The charity wouldn't ask people for money or gift donations directly. 
what was devised as this low overhead efficient system. There would be no exchange of funds. He made a big you know deal out of that, not even gifts. I mean, what's not to like about that? The public and the press, they love the idea. Gluck saved Christmas in New York. His charity even earned him the nickname, the Santa Claus Man. His idea took off. He started to see the money pour in and realized that, oh, this is actually a really potent moneymaker. Gluck liked to help children, but it turned out he liked money and fame even more. You know, it's just like that old famous Christmas poem. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of dollar signs danced in Gluck's head. I'm Alzo Slade, and this is Cheap, the show where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, the con man who played Santa Claus. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Alex Palmer knows a lot about John Duvall Gluck Jr. because not only did he write a book about him, but Alex is Gluck's great-grandnephew. He spent years hearing stories about Gluck's life from family. Gluck was the oldest of five siblings. He liked to pull pranks. He really was a child at heart, just always having really wild stories to tell. He was the life of the party. Alex says he was a bit of a showboat. He was always kind of a stylish guy, very uh, exacting about a mustache he wore, and they would always be wearing a stylish, uh, you know, bowler or something. In his 20s, Gluck worked for his father's business as a customs broker before he moved on to something that better suited his outgoing personality, publicity. He'd made some friends in high places, in the business community, in entertainment. He loved to be around that and liked to think of himself as a man of influence and esteem. Then one day in 1913, Gluck picked up the paper and read that the post office was changing their policy about releasing children's letters to Santa. Any individual or organization could volunteer to take them. I'm thinking that Gluck probably sat forward in his chair, straightened his bowler hat and his mustache, and thought to himself, hmm, I can do this. I have experience fundraising, and it's for the kids. So Gluck contacts the post office and says he'd take the letters, that he would be Santa Claus. The thing is, Gluck was kind of an odd choice to be Santa. At this point, he was 35, divorced, and had no children of his own. And really, the most Christmassy thing about him was that he was born on December 25th, Christmas Day. But the post office went with the young divorcee with no kids. Why? Well, Gluck was also the only person to volunteer for the job. And at least he seemed to know the right people and seemed to be doing it for the right reasons. Gluck approached the unanswered letters the only way he knew how, like a business. He was a publicity man at that point and said, this is a great opportunity. He also had this interest in this kind of management. This is how the Santa Claus Association worked. The Santa Claus Association would write a response to every letter. So Gluck enlisted some volunteers to help. 
They actually had these really adorable letters from the North Pole stationery that would go to every kid that wrote. So even if the ones who didn't get answered with a present, they would at least get a little response back from St. Nick. For efficiency, there was a pre-written response that would get mailed out from Santa. And if the volunteer felt like it, they could add a little more to the note. But there was pretty much a form reply that each kid would get automatically. Gluck paired letters with volunteer gift givers. But first, there was a vetting process. But it wasn't for the volunteers. It was for the kids. Yeah, that's right. The Santa Claus Association needed to confirm that the kids writing these letters were as needy as they said they were. They actually would employ the help of local Boy Scouts to go door to door. And it's not clear that they really checked up on every single letter, but the intent was there at least to try and find a way to be sure this is a kid that actually was in need. Wow. So this guy was sending Boy Scouts to make sure Tiny Tim was hungry and broke? That sounds like some real Scrooge-like behavior to me. But once it had been confirmed that they were, in fact, in need, their letters would get matched with generous donors. Gluck used his business connections and word of mouth to seek out charitable New Yorkers. There was a lot of businesses then that would get on board that would say, you know, we've got 200 employees, so we're going to get 200 letters. You know, please send them our way. So they would be the donors, and they would have them on a, a tracking, you know, list. And the donors could buy and send a gift or mail a check. Some donors went directly to the child's house. They had these society ladies going to the poor neighborhoods of New York and knocking on the door and bringing the gift and saying, you know, is little Jimmy here? And having the, the gift at the ready. And at the time, really unusual kind of cross-class encounters that just people that would not have come across each other in you know, any other time during the year. For the time, the Santa Claus Association was innovative. It wasn't just a charitable effort. It was this new way of doing charity was, was the way that Gluck sold it, that he was able to cut away a lot of the overhead you'd have with a traditional charitable organization where you'd have a lot of you know, offices and investment and things like that. Gluck didn't have employees or rent to pay. In fact, he ran his charity out of the back room of a Manhattan steakhouse where he knew the manager. But Gluck knew if this was going to work, he had to go big in one area, the press. He had to sell his new organization to the public and earn their trust. Because the last time New Yorkers checked, kids' unopened letters to Santa were being thrown in the trash by the post office. So Gluck spoke to journalists to hype up his brand new charity. They published these really heartwarming letters in the newspaper. Kids from all over the city had stories to tell. Some funny, others heartbreaking. They asked for all kinds of things from Santa. It kind of ran the gamut. You know, it might be a doll or a new set of clothes. One kid asked for like a glass eye for his father that needed it. Dear Santa, please bring me a new doll. My old one has no legs and a first reader. Merry Christmas. The papers included first-hand testimonies of donors buying new clothes or a toy car and bringing them straight to a child's home. And it became this sensation. In the first year, Alex estimates the association answered around 28,000 letters, and thousands of gifts were sent out. 
but they took very sketchy notes, so it was hard to really back that up with much paperwork. And that was sort of by design in the early years where he really didn't want to position the Santa Claus Association as the gift-buying part of it. That was only temporary, though. The next year, when some of the novelty of the association started to wear off, Gluck knew he needed to dream bigger. He started holding fundraisers, saying that the organization needed supplies and gifts. Suddenly, this no-overhead organization was asking for a lot of money. People were more than eager to help out a good cause. They didn't question it. But maybe they should have. That's after the break. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The Santa Claus Association had a wildly successful first year. It was celebrated not only for the heartwarming aspects of what the association had done, but the business innovations, the charity, creativity. It was really the concept of the association that caught a lot of attention. And then Gluck grabbed that opportunity to raise his own profile. John Gluck started rubbing shoulders with some of the bigwigs of the time. There was a, a benefit show for John Barrymore starring in a Broadway show and that the night's ticket sales all went to the Santa Claus Association to cover for postage. Politicians got involved with the charity. The governor of New York himself, Al Smith, put his support behind the association. By the second year, the charity had grown to several hundred volunteers. Gluck had to move his headquarters out of the steakhouse. From then on, the organization would be hosted by a new vendor each year. Once it was in the Hotel Astor in New York City's Times Square. Another year, it was in the Woolworth Building. Which was at the time the tallest building in the world, and this was a really prominent place for it to be. Gluck and his charity were really gaining notoriety. But despite the fact that the charity prided itself on low overhead and people giving directly to the children, Gluck started asking for money. It started with needing funds for postage. They claimed they needed, I think it was just like $1,000 for postage, which was pretty excessive already. The benefit show brought in $3,000 just on its own. So there's already these questionable numbers that would be raising far more money than it would actually need. Then the organization came out with a newsletter called the Santa Claus Annual that people could pay a subscription for. It mostly talked about all the great stuff the organization did that year and included photos of all the prestigious donors like the Astors and Vanderbilts who pledged their support for the association. 
Gluck also started a gift buying committee. Instead of donating gifts, people were asked to donate money and the committee would buy the gifts. Each year, the personal shopping committee would spend thousands of dollars buying children toys. They also started to pay salaries to group leaders, about $4,000 a year. I don't know that he had walked into this originally expecting this to be a big uh, cash cow. I think he thought that this was a great opportunity for publicity, which seemed to be as much on his mind as cash making, and and that actually would do good things. But uh, once he started to see the checks that were getting cut, he started to find other ways to generate more money. And once he started realizing how easy it was to generate that money, well, well, he started to pocket a little bit. Well, I am doing all these good things for these kids, so maybe, you know, if I'm asking for a little extra, you know, maybe I'll just take this little perk here and perk there. Gluck plotted all kinds of money-making ideas for his charity. Then in 1915, he came up with his most ambitious fundraiser idea to date. Gluck felt it was time for his charity to get a building of its very own. None of this building hopping every year. Gluck announced that they would be building an official Santa Claus Association headquarters right in the center of New York City. And it would be ordinary by no means. The building would be made entirely of white marble. On the exterior, there'd be different versions of Santa Claus from all over the world. And inside, was going to have a trade show for toys. There would be restaurants in there. This giant stained glass Santa Claus illustration at the front that would be framing a huge, tall Christmas tree with these beautiful architectural elements all throughout. Really? That's one hell of a building for a seasonal letter-writing charity. But Gluck was ready to expand the association into a year-round event. The first floor of the building would be offices for the organization and other participating charities. There would be a children's library and an auditorium that would put on plays and host lectures for children. The second floor would have a massive market with toys from all around the world. And it really would be sort of a United Nations of children's welfare and helping them in all these different ways and also just be a fun place to go visit. Sounds like a fun place to visit to me. But how much is this going to cost? Marble and stained glass? That's not cheap. Uh, Unfortunately, it would also have a price tag of $300,000. Whoa, $300,000? That's like over $8 million today. And where did Mr. Santa Claus man think that money was going to come from? From generous donors, of course. Gluck meticulously laid out the details of this massive project to the press. He detailed how he lined up a realtor, builders, and how he commissioned architects. Gluck believed that the proposed Santa Claus building would become a national monument. And the public ate it up. And checks started, you know, pouring in for this. And the Santa Claus man, well, he started to look and move a little different. He started to live more elaborately. He bought a new place in New Jersey that was, you know, kind of a nicer place. He started driving nice cars. Kind of just keeping that lifestyle funded was where certainly would have been more expensive than what, you know, a small-time publicity man or part-time customs broker would have been able to afford. Now, 
You'd think people would start asking questions when they saw the founder of a nonprofit charitable organization driving a flashy car. It really took a while for people to start questioning it. And many people didn't question it ever during the whole organization's run. When it started to unravel was when some of Gluck's other schemes, he started to use the Santa Claus Man playbook with other charity organizations. Now, the Santa Claus Association only operated for one month out of the year. Gluck had 11 months to figure out what to do until the next Christmas season. He needed a side hustle where he could continue scheming. But it would be the beginning of the end for the Santa Claus man. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Everything was going so well with the Santa Claus Association that John Gluck was ready to get involved with another charitable cause. It was 1913, and the nation was on the precipice of war, World War I. There was a fairly new organization that taught young boys survival skills and civic duties. It was called the Boy Scouts of America. But with the nation on the brink of war, people criticized the group for not including military training as part of their roster. They were considered unpatriotic. So a rival youth organization was formed called the United States Boy Scout. The difference was that this group embraced militarism. They ran drills and actually allowed their members, some as young as 12, to wield rifles. Pretty clearly, this was a bad idea. After one boy shot and killed another boy, the U.S. Boy Scout lost the public's trust and membership declined. In 1914, after the Santa Claus Association's first successful year, Gluck stepped in to help the U.S. Boy Scout with fundraising. He helped their publicity by appealing to people who valued patriotism. Don't you want to help young boys train for a future in the military? It's their duty. Donate today. He was directly competing with a very powerful, legitimate organization. Problem is, The United States Boy Scout, as you can see and hear, was very close to the recognized Boy Scouts of America. People could hardly tell the difference between the two, and Gluck naturally took advantage of that. As it turned out, a lot of these fundraising schemes, things like reaching out to high-profile people, asking people to donate to this good cause, and blatantly kind of blurring the difference between them and the Boy Scouts of America, kind of intentionally causing confusion between which organization was the legitimate one. And while Gluck was raking in unauthorized funds for a sketchy scouting organization, he got a 40% commission for the money he raised, on top of a nice salary. The Boy Scouts of America didn't like this one bit. The U.S. Boy Scouts were stealing their patrons, so they went after the group. A lot of these high-profile people that had agreed to support the group realized that this was not the group they thought they were supporting. The case made it all the way to the New York Supreme Court. In 1919, 
the group was forced to change its name and eventually ended. That kind of exposed a lot of what Gluck was doing, but somehow the Santa Claus Association continued on. The scandal with the U.S. Boy Scout caught the attention of New York's Public Welfare Commissioner, Bird Kohler. He suspected that all wasn't merry and bright at the Santa Claus Association. He was a very exacting, tough guy. He was overlooking not only the city's charities, but also the public welfare hospitals. You know, things at the time were a bit of the Wild West. Back in the 1920s, charities didn't have a lot of regulation. People were kind of free to run their organization the way they wanted to with little oversight or impunity. So a lot of organizations could make wild claims that weren't really backed up. Kohler came in and said, we need to have some regulation. We need to have, you know, people checking up that the money's going where it's supposed to go. He led investigations and cracked down on street solicitors. In 1927, Kohler turned his attention to John Gluck. He saw that he was involved with the United States Boy Scout scandal and brought him in for questioning. And brought Gluck into his office to kind of, you know, assess what this group was doing. Why were they fundraising on this name? And then that kind of led him to assess the Santa Claus Association. Kohler was playing bad cop. It was just a few weeks before Christmas, and he tried to strong-arm Gluck into letting him see his financial records. All right, Gluck, if your charity is so honest, prove it. Where's this money going? But... Gluck was a tough nut to crack. He wasn't going to let some hard-ass accountant ruin his most lucrative season over some bureaucratic BS. Gluck got his journalist friends to attack Kohler, but the bad press didn't work. Kohler got his hands on the books anyway, and what he found was a lot of shoddy record-keeping. There was money coming in, but where it was going was sort of suspicious. Kohler discovered that the group brought in over $100,000 but nothing was written down about where the money went. There were lists of employees and salaries, but it wasn't clear what these employees were doing. And then so much money going to this gift-buying committee where they weren't really tracking what gifts were being bought. Worst of all, the Santa Claus building that was supposed to be this epic monument, the group had records of accepting donations for its construction, but the thing was never built. It's not clear how it got derailed or whether it was ever realistically expected to happen because they'd drawn up sketches of this building and it got a ton of publicity. But then there was no follow-up, no ground broken beyond the fundraising that kind of continued to happen around it. And then it kind of just dropped off. The truth was, it was all part of an elaborate fundraising scheme. And a lot of that money raised was used to line Gluck's pockets. Alex says because the records weren't carefully accounted for, it's hard to say exactly how much Gluck stole. But he estimates Gluck pocketed around a quarter million dollars, which is like $7 million today. Kohler was pretty convinced this was a shady enterprise and had every reason to think so. But Kohler couldn't shut down the group because of the New York law at the time. If you listen to our Founding Fraudsters episode, which I know you have, you remember how hard it used to be to accuse someone of being a scammer. 
you had to be pretty blatantly fraudulent to actually get shut down as a charity. If just some of your money was going to the good cause, that was usually enough to allow you to skate by. It would take a lot to really shut down an organization. Technically, that's what the Santa Claus Association was doing. Some of their money was actually going to postage and gifts for kids. And some of it found its way into Gluck's wallet. So they couldn't really be prosecuted. But there was no way Kohler was going to let Gluck get away with this. So he turned to the place that gave John Gluck the authority to operate his charity in the first place. The post office. The postmaster had given Gluck permission since 1913 to be Santa's ambassador to New York City to answer his letters. So Kohler struck on the fact that all it would take really was for the postmaster to reverse that and say that Gluck could not answer Santa's letters, that he was not going to be the recipient of this mail, that the Santa Claus Association had no right to answer Santa's mail, and that would do it. So Kohler strolled on down to the post office and probably threw Gluck's sketchy books at the postal inspector and said, hey, this guy's a sham. He's stealing money from this organization. And with that, he convinced the postal inspector to revoke Gluck's access to the Santa letters. And not only that, these men went straight to the Santa Claus headquarters, whatever fancy hotel it was being hosted by, and confiscated every single letter and made sure no more letters would ever be sent to Gluck again. Once that post office removed their endorsement of him, it all kind of unraveled. After a 15-year run, the Santa Claus Association was shut down in 1928. But Gluck got off easy. He never had to pay back any stolen funds, nor was he charged with any crimes. His only punishment was being prohibited from answering Santa letters. He was in New York a few more years, and eventually he moved down to Florida and kind of went into real estate down there. The post office realized they couldn't risk something like this happening again. The Postal Service itself actually stepped in after they shut the organization down. It was clear that they needed to have more central regulation of it. The post office started their own organization, Operation Santa Claus. Their approach was actually inspired by what Gluck's organization did, just without the stealing money part. The U.S. Postal Service ended up following that sort of crowdsourced approach where you can come, get the letters, sit down and, you know, look through a handful of letters and find the one that speaks to you and go out and buy the gifts and, and mail it yourself and kind of play Santa. The organization is still around today. So you could say at least something good came from Gluck's Long Con, a regulated system for answering children's letters to Santa. When I think of Christmas, I think of things like joy, generosity, selflessness. The holiday season, it opens people up to being more charitable and non-judgmental. You know, goodwill towards men and all that. Santa Claus is a figure that represents all of these things. And when you think about him, he's not stealing money from kids. The idea of this organization that really was almost crafted to 
encourage you not to try to ask too many questions. It was really set up to be like, this is about the heart, it's not about the mind. This is about doing a good thing and feeling good about it. And we don't wanna analyze this too closely. There was no questions about the running of the organization from a, is this legitimate? Are these funds going where they're supposed to? Actually, the only questioning that was going on in the operation was about the kids the trustworthiness of the children writing the letters to Santa, not the guy running it. Critics would say, you know, we don't even know that these kids actually need these gifts. And not only that, even if they did, it's sort of teaching them to be beggars. And do we want to be encouraging this kind of behavior? Can we trust these kids that are writing the letters to Santa that say they need a new toy and they can't afford it, but they probably can afford it? The paradox of all of this is, if you listen to these critics, no kids are getting the toys because if they need them, they don't want to give it to them out of fear that they'll become too dependent on getting things for free. And if they don't need them and they're writing letters as if they do, then they're scamming the system and they definitely don't get the toys. But why are we looking at the kids in the first place? Because here, the founder of a charity was stealing money in plain sight and nobody was asking questions about him. There were no Boy Scouts coming to his door or critics questioning how he runs his charity. And I think most of us would agree that he definitely was a scammer. He took the spirit of Christmas, the figure that represents Christmas, and used it to manipulate folks into giving, which some of it went to the kids, but a lot of it went to lining his own pockets. And here, as we approach this holiday season, whether you celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, or Kwanzaa, most likely we're in the giving spirit, running around right now trying to figure out what sales exist and what we're going to buy for our loved ones. We're open emotionally. We want to give to people that we care about, even strangers. So the thought of someone taking advantage of that is unspeakable. Now, I got to say this. folks. Don't let this slick scammer from over 100 years ago put a damper on what's supposed to be a joyous and cheerful season for all of us. So whether you're by yourself and even if you don't celebrate it, it's in the air to be nice to each other, kind to one another. So from all of us here at Cheat, Something Else, and Sony, we like to say happy holidays. Next time on Cheat. It's kind of crazy how this has gotten turned into itself. Like even to this day, people will bring up the Mass Brothers to me and say, oh, I hear they were remelting Hershey's and their chocolate should have only cost a dollar or something like that. And I'm like, I don't know. That's so far from what happened. Cheat is presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Casey Georgie. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Megan Dietrich. The original idea for the show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering and sound design by Sam Baer. Our production coordinator is Ike Egbatola. Special thanks to Sony Legal Teams.